Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of the ABA Journal's Legal Trailblazer series. My name is Victor Lee, and I'm an assistant managing editor with the ABA Journal. Today, I'll be chatting with lawyer, media, and technology professional Bob Ambrosi. Bob is one of the true innovators in the legal technology field of journalism. He founded Lawsite's blog in 2002 with the stated purpose of posting news and reviews of websites of interest. Since then, Bob has expanded his blog to cover product and app reviews while writing about the legal profession as a whole. He's written multiple books, including The Essential Guide to the Best and Worst Legal Sites on the Web, which was published in 2001. During the course of his journalism career, he's worked for ALM Media as editor-in-chief of the National Law Journal, as well as Lawyers Weekly Publications in Boston, where he was founding editor of the national newspaper Lawyers USA and editor-in-chief of Massachusetts Lawyer Weekly and Rhode Island Lawyers Weekly. He also hosts a pair of podcasts here on Legal Talk Network, Lawyer to Lawyer and Law Technology Now. It is truly a pleasure to have Bob on here with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Victor, for having me. Obviously, you've done a lot in legal journalism, as I've just gone over. Could you tell us what made you decide to become a journalist in the first place? I had always wanted to be a journalist. I was a journalist before I went to law school. I always wanted to be a writer, uh, you know, novelist, journalist, something. I was a journalism major as an undergraduate, and I actually went to law school to try and advance my career in journalism. I didn't go to law school thinking I would be a lawyer. So um, what was it about the law that, that attracted you to writing about that as opposed to writing about you know, sports or about uh, national affairs or science or any other topic in journalism? Well, it wasn't even that. It was that I w- as an undergrad, well, I had graduated from college and I was actually editing a little newspaper, running a little newspaper in Springfield, Massachusetts, a little community newspaper. And I decided I was going to go back to graduate school and get a master's in journalism. And I went back to... The professor who had been my undergraduate advisor and told him that, and he said, you know, if I were you, I would not get a master's in journalism. He said, you've already learned how to report and write. If I were you, I'd get a degree that will teach you something about how the world works. And he was the one who suggested law school. I had never thought about law school, but he said, you know, whatever you can write about as a journalist, pretty much, whether it's politics or business or, you know, even just community, local government affairs, law underlies it. And uh, an understanding of the law will really help you as a journalist. So that made a lot of sense to me. So I didn't really go to law school thinking I necessarily wanted to write about law, per se. It was more that I, I took his advice that it was a good way to kind of help understand how the world works. Gotcha. As I mentioned, in 2002, you started Lawside's blog. I don't even think I knew what a blog was at that point. So what made you decide to start it? Did you ever envision that you would be still running it after 15 years? <laughs> Absolutely not. No, I did not think I would still be doing it after 15 years. What made me start it was, as you mentioned earlier, I I had written a book. It was actually published by ALM. And then they had me about the, the best websites for lawyers. And then they had me do a second edition of it. And as I finished the second edition, I quickly realized that it was out of date because the you know the internet was just changing so quickly and i kind of heard about these things called blogs there were not a lot of legal blogs back then but there were a few and uh, it just seemed to me a much more sensible way to keep track of all the developments on the internet to, rather than to put out a book every year or something like that so i really 
I started it almost as kind of a supplement to my book, thinking you know that was just a better way to keep up with all these new legal websites that were appearing at that point on on the web. Now you've been covering technology for a long time, obviously, and we've spoken before about the adoption of technology within the legal industry. In what ways has the legal industry been quick to adopt technology, and in what areas do you think they've been a little bit slower? Well, I think in almost all areas, they've been quick to adopt technology, and in almost all areas, they've been slow to adopt technology. And what I mean by that is, I actually do kind of think, you know, although lawyers have a reputation as being slow to adopt technology, I actually think there's always been kind of a, a vanguard, if you will, of, of practitioners who have been early adopters of, of a number of different technologies and incorporated it into their law practices. I, I think just the web in general is a great example of that. I've I've uh, often pointed out that one of the first web browsers ever developed when the web first became a thing was developed for lawyers because uh, this is, uh, the Legal Information Institute designed a web browser because it wanted to make it easy for lawyers to access case law, which there was just starting to be case law on the web. Uh, some of the first content on the on the web was legal content, statutes and cases and that sort of thing. But you know, it, that said, so so and and the other interesting thing about that is it's often been kind of the solo and small firm lawyers who've been early adopters, and I think. Even solo and small firm lawyers in rural areas, I think, because often they don't have access to all the resources and whatever, and if they can get it online, all the better. But that said, you know, the, the legal industry as a whole has been very slow to adopt technology. It's almost, in some ways, seemed like the larger the firm, the slower the adoption. And, you know, in other institutions, courts for a long time were slow to adopt it uh, and implement it. Uh, and really, in a lot of ways, a lot of courts are still kind of uh, in the early days of, of really becoming technologically adept and, and intelligent about how they use it. So, you know, I, again, I can't kind of hard to pin it down on a specific technology so much as it's almost more the sector of the legal community you're talking about in terms of how quickly or slowly it's adopted it. I mean, do you think a big part of it is just how they're trained? I mean, lawyers are trained to look to precedent. They're, they're trained to... You know, not be the first one out of the box. They're trained to, you know, see what else has been done, who else has done things. So, you know, you never want to be the first one to do something in case then you find out that it's not allowed or it's wrong or a judge smacks you down. Do you think that's part of it? That's part of it. And there's also just the, you know, the distrust of the uh, of some of the security issues, especially with the move to the cloud. And of course, there's, you know, at law firms, there's the whole business model. I mean, everything has to be done by committees and studied to death. And, you know, larger law firms have a reputation for not being able to be agile, not being able to kind of move quickly and adopt new technologies. And then, of course, in the public sector and in the courts, it's it's been a a budgetary matter as much as everything is as anything. I, I know here in Massachusetts, where I am, uh, you know, for years, courts have struggled with having the the money they need just to operate on a regular basis, let alone begin to invest in in new technology. So it's a combination of factors. Now, here's something that I don't think I've asked you before. I mean, just I know uh -oh. as a <laughs> don't worry, it's nothing. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ask you for the secret sauce or anything. But hey, if you know it, uh, feel free. <laughs> As a journalist, I know I get tons of press releases and pitches from, you know, everybody under the sun all claiming that, you know, some new product or new service is the greatest thing since sliced bread. I'm sure you probably get 10 times as many as I do. So how do you figure out which ones are worth writing about and which ones are not? Well, 
partly experience, I think, because I, you know, I have been doing this a long time, and I do get those pitches saying, "Hey, we just had this great new idea that nobody's done before," and I can kind of look back at my own archives and say, "Well, in fact, several people have tried to do that and, and failed, uh, or not." But uh, it, it isn't the first time. You know, I think it's a little bit gut, gut instinct. I do still practice law. And it's one of the reasons I kind of like to keep practicing law because I think it gives me more of a sense of what would help be helpful to me and, and you know, what could help make my life easier or, or more efficient or, or whatever. But, uh, you know, experience speaks for a lot. It's kind of funny because for as long as I've been writing about technology, I really don't consider myself very sort of technologically astute. Uh, there are a lot of people out there who are very, very smart about technology, and, and I still kind of consider myself stupid about technology. But I think that makes me think about it more practical ways, perhaps, and, uh, you know, kind of sort things out that way. Gotcha. So you talked about your law practice. So what kind of cases do you handle? And do your skills as a lawyer, does that help you as a journalist in terms of, you know, how to scrutinize things, how to how to go about solving a problem or, or writing about something? Like, does your practice inform your writing and vice versa? I have kind of boiled my practice down at this point in my career to two main things. One is that I work as a lobbyist uh, and I represent the newspaper industry here in Massachusetts in the courts and in the legislature. So uh, that has you know very direct relevance to the rest of my career, having been an editor and publisher and writer of various newspapers over the years. And most of the issues that I work on are, are more kind of reporting-related issues, access issues like you know dealing with freedom of information laws or open meeting laws or journalist privilege uh, issues. And then I also do uh, some ADR work, which is something I've done for a, a number of years, arbitration and mediation work. But certainly the skills that lawyers have very much translate to journalism and vice versa. And, you know, I, I think you and I both probably know a, a number of people who have gone one way or the other, who have maybe started out as journalists and gone to law school or have started out in law school and gone into journalism. Sure. Uh, you know, it's all about gathering facts and sorting through those facts and determining what's important and what's relevant and then presenting that information in a, in a cohesive and, and useful way. So they're, they're very much the same skill sets. Yeah, I think when I decided to stop practicing and I decided to go into writing, you know, one person told me that, you know, it's basically the skills are very similar in a, lot, in a sense that you in both instances, you're telling a story, especially if you're, you know, if you're a litigator. In both instances, you're, you're telling a story. It's just you go about it differently or you're ultimately trying to do different things. But, you know, you still have to have that set of facts. You have to have, you know, that narrative. You have to have the characters and what they're doing and whatnot. So, you know, so there definitely is an overlap as far as I've seen. So I definitely agree with you in that sense. Yeah. The only downside is that law school totally corrupts your ability to write clearly. <laughs> you have to recover from that after you get out of law school. Well, it's also very expensive. So I think my, my parents were like, that, yeah. yeah, they were like, couldn't you have figured this out before you went to law school <laughs> that you didn't want to be a lawyer? <laughs> so anyway, just looking ahead, I wanted to ask you just about what are some trends in legal technology that you think are worth keeping an eye on? Because, you know, obviously, you know, these days, everything's about artificial intelligence. Uh, I know a lot of people are talking about blockchain, predictive analytics. So there are definitely a lot of things that are worth looking at, but what do you think are sort of the things that are especially worth kind of keeping an eye on? 
all of the above in terms of what you just said. I mean, I do, you know, there's still right now, we're in a, a big hype cycle with regard to artificial intelligence. And there's, you know, a lot of lawyers don't perhaps understand uh, what it really is or, or what it can do. But I think artificial intelligence, machine learning tools will become uh, just increasingly important and very quickly. So all the fear mongering about uh, machines replacing lawyers isn't going to happen. But what machine learning and artificial intelligence does do is enable us to become much more efficient, uh, enable us to use data and see into data in ways that we weren't previously able to do. So I think that will certainly be important. I think blockchain is really interesting. I am still trying to fully understand the eventual uh, implications of this. I'm, I'm going to be uh, going off in a week uh, to a, a conference at MIT on blockchain and law that looks pretty interesting. But the, uh, you know, the idea of sort of foolproof security and identities uh, that can be created through blockchain is something that will ultimately be extremely important in the legal profession and, and to the clients that, that lawyers serve, you know, especially financial clients, but all sorts of corporations. Uh, and the applications and implications of blockchain seem to really extend across uh, law practice and even into practice management in terms of the, sort of the back-end uh, operations of billing and timekeeping and whatever uh, using blockchain technologies to uh, identify, you know, instead of in place of uh, client codes and task codes and, and all this other stuff, uh, everything will have unique identifiers through blockchain and will really redefine even our back-end operations at law firms. So th I think those two, I think AI and blockchain are, are the, and analytics, you know, sort of, sort of falls in there too, but uh, those are the big two going forward. All right. So that was pretty much what I had then. Um, thank you again for joining us today, Bob. And if our listeners would like to get in touch with you for whatever reason, what's the best way to do it? Uh, they can always find me on Twitter at Bob Ambrogi, B-O-B-A-M-B-R-O-G-I. Or if they want to email me, it's my last name, A-M-B-R-O-G-I at gmail.com. And they can always read my blog, lawsitesblog.com. And I also uh, write a weekly uh, tech column on abovethelaw.com. Gotcha. So anyway, thanks again for joining us. You've been listening to the ABA Journal's Legal Trailblazers podcast. If you like what you hear, please check us out on Apple Podcasts. This is Victor Lee signing off. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.